Hey guys, this is Cody Turner. In this episode of the podcast, I talk with my friend and fellow grad student, Darian Spearman. Darian is a third-year PhD student in philosophy at the University of Connecticut, and he's an awesome guy. Extremely intelligent, patient, kind. Darian and I became friends after we got into a couple of what I perceive to be fruitful political discussions with one another. I think it's fair to say that he's farther on the left-hand side of the political spectrum than I am. I consider myself on the left, but I'm not a proponent of this phenomenon that some have labeled the regressive left. Darian and I talk about all this in the podcast. As I hope you'll agree, I think my conversations with Darian are a good example of two people with slightly different political viewpoints coming together and having a meeting of the minds. In this episode of the podcast, we discuss psychedelics, in particular our own personal experiences with psychedelics, and some of the insights that we've gained from them. And then this leads into a discussion about spirituality, and in particular, the relationship between religion and spirituality. We talk about the epistemological status of psychedelic and spiritual experiences and practices, whether spirituality can be divorced from religion. I think it can be. We get into the weeds a bit, talking about a paper of Darian's which concerns the spiritual practices of colonized people. We contrast spiritual practices and scientific methodology, raise some philosophical questions about the nature of science and the limitations of science, and then we make a lateral move to politics and discuss this concept of the regressive left and the related notion of safe spaces. This brings up a bunch of different issues. One prominent one that we focus on in the discussion is the nature and history of institutions and universities in the United States. And then we close by sharing our thoughts about free speech and specifically, to what extent it is permissible, if ever, to impose restrictions on free speech. And it was a really fun conversation. And I hope to have Darian back on the podcast very soon. And I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Tent Talks, a series of intimate conversations with academics, artists, and other fascinating figures with your host, Cody Turner. Darian, I've been threatening you with this podcast for some time now, and we finally have come together and make it happen. Yeah. Uh, thank you for coming on. Yeah, no problem. So hopefully we'll get into some uh, we'll get into some politics. We'll have a discussion about psychedelics. Yeah. I will have given you a proper introduction in the preamble to the episode, but okay. may, perhaps we could start by you describing your your background, your mm -hmm. intellectual history, what motivated you to go into grad school in philosophy and your current research interests in philosophy as they stand. Yeah, so I I always felt like I wanted to go to grad school. Um, people have always said I was smart and luckily, unlike a lot of um, black people in America, my grandmother, my mother's side is, was a professor uh, in the 70s and um, so I always had the sense of the academy being a part of my life, you know, something I could aspire to. So I just felt like I wanted to do it. And I ended up in philosophy mainly because at SIU, they were still, Southern Illinois University, they were still accepting applications in August. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they were like, and they didn't require a GRE. So I was like, all right, I'll go on to philosophy. My previous degree was in religious studies. Oh, okay. And... Um, yeah, I was in a bit of a crisis. I didn't know, like, I was having all these kind of spiritual experiences, and I was having, I didn't know what I wanted to do because the economy collapsed in 2008, and that's 
the full effect of that was coming right around the time I was graduating in 2011. So I wasn't. I was just kind of just gonna stay home and drift around. And my mom was like, "No, you can't stay here." So I went to grad school in philosophy, and I find that once I started reading things like Critical Race Theory, Franz Fanon, Gandhi, other people, I found like, "Wow, I really like this, and it's something I want to do." And so I kept pushing with that. Um, so what are you saying? Oh yeah, my interests. Yeah, my interests like yeah, philosophy of science, philosophy of reason, mm-hmm. myth, philosophy of religion, all these things—the intersection of reason, um, and myth, and religion and spirituality. Because there seems to be a, one of the major crises of our generation of our time period is figuring out how these things interrelate to each other, mm-hmm. um, and we have a whole history of past three or four hundred years that have kind of made some pretty nasty and unfortunate entang- disentanglements and entanglements so yeah we can talk more about that so yeah i want to yeah, i want to talk about spirituality yeah. and i think a good segue into that discussion and in particular your paper i think a good segue into that, that discussion will be a brief discussion about psychedelics yeah so we both talked about this um mm-hmm. psychedelics have influenced our lives in various positive ways i guess It'll be a good segue into your paper because your paper is largely about spirituality and in particular yeah. the spiritual practices of colonialized oppressed people. Yeah. So perhaps I can just start by listing a couple of good things that I've learned from psychedelics mm-hmm. and how psych- my psychedelic experiences have kind of injected a sense of spirituality into my life that wasn't there before. Yeah. So, well, first of all, For me, part of my motivation to go into grad school in philosophy was born through my psychedelic experiences. Mm. As you know, my main research interests are in consciousness. And I started doing some LSD and shrooms and having all these profound alterations in my consciousness. And it made me realize that you can have experiences that are just radically different from the experiences that you have on a daily basis. And it wanted, it just it motivated me to explore the nature of consciousness more. And I started reading and I realized, wow, we really haven't figured out what the nature of consciousness yeah, is. Don't know That's why we're, there's a hard problem. Yeah, we barely know anything about consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. So, that, yeah, that's one thing. Another thing psychedelics have taught me is just how, how your mind is, so your life will become. Mm-hmm. It's made me realize just how profound of an influence your thoughts have on yes. your life. You know, and it's especially salient in psychedelic experiences because, you know, you say that you're having a bad trip yes. and it's born of a bad thought, right? Like the feeling that you have is directly linked to the propositional content of the thought. And all you need to do to change the nature of your trip is just think a different thought, mm-hmm. right? It's like the feeling by necessity will go away once the propositional content that it's associated with mm-hmm. disappears. Yeah. So it's made me realize, you know, once you realize that, you become really careful about what you think about. You know, you become more mindful about cultivating healthy patterns of thought. Yes. So that's one thing. Mm-hmm. Another thing is that I've never had a wholly bad psychedelic trip before, mm-hmm. but I've had some really bad moments where mm-hmm. my psyche, for all intents and purposes, just kind of collapsed. And mm-hmm. it's made me realize how just horrible and terrifying those bad psychedelic mindsets are and how powerless you are when you're in them. So it's kind of made me more sympathetic with people that have genuine mental problems and struggle with this on a daily basis Mm -hmm. because you can't really understand 
what they're going through if you haven't partially experienced it yourself. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I've had, my experiences have been brief. You know, my experiences of existential terror where the gates of hell are just opened Mm -hmm. on psychedelics. But they've been there, you know, I've had them. So it's definitely made me more sympathetic in that regard. And conversely, it's made me realize just how beautiful states of consciousness there are that Mm -hmm. you can inhabit, Mm -hmm. that you don't inhabit on a daily basis. You know, I've had... This feeling of boundless love, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's just kind of like an objectless love that's just directed at any low key of consciousness in the universe. Mm-hmm. Before my psychedelic experiences, I would hear that and just kind of write it off as yes. hippie exactly. nonsense. Exactly. But once you actually experience it, you realize how true it is. Yes. You know, you realize that it's like it doesn't take my worst enemy. Mm-hmm. They can come into the room and I will wish nothing but good things for them. Yeah. You know, um, so yeah, so it's, and it's, this has partly motivated my interest in Buddhism and meditation. You know, it's made me realize that you can cultivate uh, states of consciousness like this on more of a daily basis. Like yes. that just shows you that it's possible. It's mm-hmm. possible to live a more beautiful life. And it goes back to, you know, again, how, how you frame reality yes. is in large part how reality is for you. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth thing is, and this is the last one, is that, and this is, um, particular to my experiences on DMT. Mm-hmm. But my experiences on DMT have made me more open to the possibility of disembodied consciousness. Okay, good. So pretty much before DMT, I was I had kind of a strong belief in the impossibility yeah. of disembodied consciousness, but it's made me more agnostic now. Yeah, yeah. And it hasn't I certainly don't believe that there is some spiritual realm out there with elfmen or whatever that yeah. some people believe that after coming out of these experiences where they claim to spend an eternity but it's definitely made me more open to the possibility now there's still you know perhaps my consciousness can exist disembodied that doesn't mean it's still going to be me so there's still a personal identity question there but you know i think this is going to relate to the conversation that we're going to have about your paper Mm -hmm. because one rule I have is no matter, I'm very tentative about drawing metaphysical conclusions mm-hmm. based upon phenomenal, phenomenological mm-hmm. feelings, mm-hmm. D- no matter how profound those feelings or experiences may be. And this is kind of just like a golden rule that I always kind of bring into any psychedelic experience that I have. Mm-hmm. Because you can have so many profound psychedelic experiences. You know, you can encounter all kinds of things which seem to be accurately tracking like a deeper reality. Yes. And it's easy, you know, a lot of people that I know have come out of psychedelic experiences and their worldview is completely different. Yes. Right? Like, so now, now they just think that they have become in contact with the real nature of reality mm-hmm. and they have all these new metaphysical beliefs that they didn't have. Yes. And that's one thing I'm very tentative about. You know, despite how profound the phenomenology is, I'm not going to just jump and say that there's some metaphysical correspondent there. And I think that's going to relate to your paper because, you know, the spiritual practices of the Native American people, for instance, you know, Mm -hmm. one reason to believe that they may accurately track reality is due to their profundity, the perceived truth that these people are receiving Mm -hmm. from the beings that they're in contact with. But it seems to me that you can have all these experiences in the absence of any supernatural beliefs or anything like that. So that'll get into the distinction between spirituality and religion. But Mm -hmm. we need not get there right now. Perhaps I've talked enough. You can say something about some things you've learned on psychedelics Mm -hmm. or 
some cool experiences that you've had? Yeah, so you, you've laid out a lot of different things. Yeah. Um, if I'm going to talk about, so I can start with my experiences, but we can already just jump into the some of the questions you that you wanted to address. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so for me, I've had, yeah, very, for me, my consciousness shifting experiences happened before psychedelics. I uh-huh. sought psychedelics because I wanted to expand on those, but the things like meditation and energy transference and all that kind of stuff, I had really profound experience when I was in high school of like boundless love and nature and all these things like that. And I wanted to, that's why I went to flaw, into religious studies because I wanted to know more about what this was and what was going on. And I, I did psychedelics because I wanted to go deeper into that consciousness and understand it more. And I had to say, I had some very powerful experiences. I saw some very um, dark things in other people. Uh, I went through some pretty crazy spaces myself. Um, and, but also, yeah, also some really great spaces. But um, one thing about, and we, we're, we're just gonna, I'm just gonna jump right in. Okay. Because yeah, of yeah, religion and spirituality. Let's do it. Religion is just, it's a tradition, right? Mm-hmm. So tradition so these spiritual realms that you're going to, the experiences that you have, yeah. people have already been doing that, right? And people have been doing it for thousands of years, mm-hmm. right? And so they're saying, they, they say, oh, I learned this, or I learned that. And other people go to that realm. They say, oh, I see the same thing, or I disagree, or whatever. And certain knowledge or understanding is passed down over centuries mm-hmm. of how to navigate these realms and what various things mean and how to talk about them and create images about them. Mm-hmm. And so, um, religion, the thing is because these experiences that you had in the religious framework are much, are considered much more integral to how we live our life, right? Mm-hmm. And the secular mindset, this is the idea where these experiences are, in, are personal and private and they don't impact the realm in which we interact. That's what secularism is about. But for religion, these, these experiences and the tradition of interpreting these experiences, yeah. Um, um, has a profound influence on our life, right? So someone has a powerful experience and they go through the, the, the whatever um, mechanisms of the tradition or interpretation or whatever, and then they say, like, you know what? This experience showed me that I actually I shouldn't be doing this job. I should be doing a different one. Well, then there's a mechanism in society to allow you to live your life because of that, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas in... Um, a more secular society that doesn't you can if you choose it and if you have the means to but there's no like there's no mechanism if you go to your boss yeah I had, a, I had a, this powerful experience of love and stuff I think that you know you should do this he's like okay you're fired or goodbye you know I'm not gonna do your get, job bro yeah you might not get a sever- you might get a severance package you might not right uh-huh. um, so that's the thing that is important about religion and spirituality um, I think that religions do evolve, have evolved, and need to evolve. I think that in the modern framework, a lot of religions have been attached to offices of power. Mm-hmm. And so that prevents the growth, right? Because then you have to also administrate and control reality through the religion. But every religion that's existed has not done that. Um, and it's hard to actually navigate through these spaces without an anchor without an interpretive community, without people that you trust, without people who have wisdom that they can guide you through that. Because after I came out of that, I went, I went into a dark space after 
I did my trip because of all the things that I went, that I went through with my family and my friends and all these these terrible things and all these like, spiritual experiences I was having independent of because this was me what, what caused me to go like you know this direction is that some of the things that I saw or some of the experiences or things that I saw in the trip when it was over it didn't go away and it's still here to this day and so I'm just like okay. some, some of the negative aspects of your trip no no the positive ones but okay. I just didn't know what they meant like certain ways of perceiving or deriving meaning or seeing energy or other things like that yeah uh, that you see during those experiences after the trip years later I still see them those things and so this wasn't until I met a great Catholic priest named Father Brown who kind of helped shepherd me through some of these things and helped me figure out okay you don't need to be doing the psychedelic things anymore. He said, "Some of because he's a priest, so he's like, some of the things that we might do once a lifetime, you're doing like repeatedly over and over again, like these super intense, crazy experiences, mm-hmm. and you're not giving enough of the time to let it breathe, you know, right? And permeate your life and stuff like that. There's so just too much profundity at once. Yeah, and and he there, said you just couldn't like interpret it. There's no time to let it digest. Yeah, and not not even that I could interpret it, but it just can." you can get disconnected from yourself as a human being. Mm-hmm. And that might be, debatably, that might be okay to do when you're 70 or 80. But it's not okay. To, it's not good to do when you're 20s. Um, so have you not done any psychedelics since you become more immersed in religion? Um, well, I'm not in a particular religious tradition. But since I got that good advice and I see that it works, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I don't, I don't, uh, I, I'm not, I'm not in a rush to open the doors. Because some of it was anxiety and some of it was meaninglessness. These are things that are not, that these experiences can help with, but they don't resolve on themselves in terms of politics. Some of them are going to involve changing the conditions around you to make them more meaningful. Mm-hmm. And some of them are going to involve dealing with your, uh, these issues of anxiety or trauma or abuse or whatever, um, and that requires talking to people and working. It's a different kind of work that, that the, these experiences themselves, they can resolve, but not, but not, but it's not guaranteed if you're doing it by yourself. Yeah. And they're, like they're fleeting, like they're altered states of consciousness, but you need to develop like good habits in life, you know? Yeah. They're fleeting, but like I said, they can, they can enter into your reality, right? Yeah. If your mind is, if your mind can handle it. Mm-hmm. Right. If your body can handle it, then these experiences can actually become more part of how you live every day. Yeah. Um, but, and there's some research has been shunned on psychedelics for quite some time. But there's some research that suggests that doing at least a mild amount of LSD can be helpful for depression and can be therapeutic. I don't yeah. know how verified that research is, yeah, but no, I've I, heard I, that. Yeah, no, there's a lot. I think there's and I can lot. see that. You know, yeah, there's lots of studies. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of studies. Me too. Like, it can totally rewire all kinds of stuff in your brain and your heart. And um, it's great for that. But one of the problems with how it's done in some ways is that it still doesn't, it still doesn't root out what's causing the depression in the first place. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem is that you can have these experiences but the problem, the reason why you're depressed is not because you haven't had a, psych- a psychedelic experience yet, yeah. right? 
other things that happen to you, you've been wounded or you've been blocked in life or whatever that make you feel disconnected from other people yeah. and make you turn in lots of negative energy on yourself. Well, I think sometimes the psychedelic experiences can enable you to have an insight about what the true cause of yes. your depression is. Yes. So it's like not the psychedelic itself, but it's the it's like a doorway that allows you to have the insight yeah. about what the true cause yeah. is. And the psychedelic, yeah, the psychedelic can help with that. Or sometimes it makes you more open to a new reality, a new version of yourself. So, for example, you're thinking like, oh, man, I have to be this way. Mm-hmm. And I and I'm so and you might take a side you realize I don't have to be the way I thought I had to be. Right. I can be something different. Yeah. And that might and that in itself can lead you to not be depressed, mm-hmm. right? Because so that's much, what we're talking about, how yeah. your thoughts determine your life. Yeah, and you're and a lot of people are wearing other people's expectations, they're wearing the pressure of society, they're wearing all these other things that they're draped on that are dragging them down like a lead you know, lead mm-hmm. sheet that they're wearing. And one sometimes when you're on those trips you can see, you can take it off yeah. and, and feel what it's like to be something different. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's, that's, that can be a lot to help people realize that there's alternative possibilities for how they live. Mm-hmm. Um, this is why I like existentialism and Sartre and Buddhism so much because it yeah. makes you realize the importance of f- how you frame your life. Um, yeah. There's so many rabbit holes that we could fall down here. I yeah, want to go back. definitely make sure you take classes with Lewis. Yeah, I know. I want to. I want yeah. to. He's, he's such a smart guy. Yeah, he's I listen to some of his lectures. God. He's really good. He's so... He met, like... So he... Just as a brief tangent. He... In one of his lectures, he would just call on a student and ask them what their first name was. Mm-hmm. And then he would tell them, like, the original... What is it called? Etymology? Yeah, yeah, of their yeah. name? Yeah. Like, he knows the history of each name and yeah. why... What the name means and stuff. Yeah. I was, I was stunned. I'm like, oh my yeah, God. Yeah, etymology's part. But yeah, for definitely for fiction, existentialism. Yeah. Um, but go, going back to the connection between spirituality and religion, I just don't want to let that go. Um, oh, yeah, I don't either. That's why I'm working on it for my dissertation. <laughs> so well, what a, one question I want to ask is, do you think that spirituality and religion can in principle be separated? Because it seems to me that they can. It seems to me that you can have this spiritual, and this again relates to the paper, you can have this spiritual connection with nature in a completely scientific context. You can mm-hmm. export spirituality into a secular point of view right um or into a secular context where there's no supernatural assumptions or belief at play right you can you can you can transfer spirituality into a scientific point of view or a philosophical point of view but i find it's very difficult to impose into a secular point of view because in secular that thing is not supposed to be there it's not supposed to be communicated Life is not supposed to be oriented around that. Okay, let's focus on the scientific point of view then, because that's what you talk about in your paper. Like for example, for example, Buddhism, right? Buddhism is a religion that is very philosophical, mm-hmm. right? Um, and um, and scientific in a lot of ways, but it's definitely religion, right? It's got a series of practices. It's got a founding. It's got a tradition. It's got a method, mm-hmm. right? That you're not supposed to deviate too far from. It's got a collection of people that have achieved certain insights or sites mm-hmm. and that's passed on to others um, there's a set of texts there's a set of myths and stories that create a community around these spiritual experiences right and may, and allow it to endure through time um, I do think that Buddhism is distinct from a lot of religions and that there is an empirical strand that runs through it that you can really divorce from the 
again, the supernatural beliefs, like beliefs in reincarnation in Buddhism, for instance. You know, you can learn how to be mindful and learn the truth of not-self that Buddhism endorses and learn how to cultivate the kind of uh, state of enlightenment and mindset that Buddhism offers along the path. And you can do all of that without assuming the existence of any god or the truth of reincarnation. You can really just divorce that part of Buddhism from all the other stuff, it seems to me. But yeah, the question is, so the question is why divorce it? And why divorce it before you've even done a lot of the practice, right? That's You see what I'm saying? There's already a sense of like, this thing needs to be pulled away from this. Even though, supposedly, these, these, these people have been practicing certain ways and they've um, come to these conclusions, right? That these experiences link to this kind of philosophy or worldview. Um, yeah, but that goes back to, again, you can't, you're not necessarily warranted to draw metaphysical conclusions based upon these profound experiences that you might have from being mindful. But here's where the, here's where the question comes in is, what, what authority do you have to draw medical, metaphysical conclusions from any type of empirical experience? Well, this gets back, this gets to the distinction between uh, the empirical status of science and the empirical status of these spiritual practices. Yeah. So uh, we can talk about that. Because, yeah, because think about it. In a, what thing exists in reality the way it exists in a laboratory? Yeah. Well, first, um, so in your paper, this is one point that you make. I guess yeah. we don't need to get into all the weeds and details of your paper right now. But yeah. one claim that you make is you're focusing on the spiritual practices of these Native American people, right? That was and, an, yeah, an, that's an yeah. example, yeah. But one of your claims is that these spiritual practices are really just as empirical, if not more empirical, than scientific methodology. Is that right? This is what Pollock and Allen argues. Right, yeah. Yes. Um, Okay, here's my perspective on it. And I'm just looking at some of the quotes from your paper. So I think it just seems false to me that these mystical practices are as empirical as scientific methodology. I think, like as we talked about earlier, they're empirical in the sense that people are having experiences, right? And then they're verifying their experiences with other people. But this process of verification isn't nearly as scrupulous as the process of verification at play in science. There's no measure of the observed effects, right? There's no like actual systematic measure of the observed effects. There's no attempt to rigorously objectify what these people have experienced subjectively, as there is in science. And th- th- I think the limits of language come in here too. Like people simply describe their experiences via language. And they may do so poorly, depending on their ability to articulate. And, you know, also, if you're a member of a tribe or something, and you're all engaging in these ex- spiritual practices, there might be some social pressure to assent to the fact that you've had these profound experiences. Because if you don't, people around you might view you as unenlightened. I can just imagine there being, that's just one thing, but I can just imagine there being various different social pressures here. Um, but, but my biggest problem is that I don't think science is as tied down to Western culture as you think it is. It's true that scientific methodology as a matter of history mm-hmm. developed in the West and in Europe, right? It didn't. Well, well as, <laughs> that's not, I'm talking about scientism, not science, right? That's my whole argument, that scientism, the idea that science is the, the vertical stick, right, in reality... That's that really develops in the Western world, but the Arabs did science, Native Americans did science, 
What's Chinese the distinction between science. scientism and science? Then Maybe science is a oh, science. Is a, sci- yeah, science is a method, okay. right? Science yep. says that you look at reality, you you measure it, mm-hmm. you control it, right? There's a control group. You, tr- you control it. You say, okay, we're gonna do these things. You create sterile conditions, right, in which there's no influences to try to isolate variables about reality. Yeah, and that's a particular method. But reality itself is not is not like that. It's not. It's not collected. It's not made up of isolated variables, right? So, of course, isolating variables can reveal things about reality, but reality itself is not composed of isolated variables. So, to even say that that this is not somehow that this is, has more access to it automatically, or that we should center it when it's based on isolated variables and reality is not so, um, creates some creates some methodological problems. Like, for example, one of the big ones is the question of objectivity and subjectivity, right? You have actually what you, what you claim is objectivity, which is to have the vantage point of the object. How do you how do you, how do you do that, right? What you have is inner subjectivity. Right, it's impossible but, to actually inhabit the view from nowhere. Yeah, <laughs> but that becomes an ideal, right? And people who yeah. are actually having inner subjective consensus are saying that they have objective consensus. And this is what Husserl with phenomenology was leads to existentialism. Yeah. Is the idea that you have to figure out the being, the, the functions of consciousness, how it manifests. You have to figure out the, the, the nature of how beings interact and how they should interact, right? Mm-hmm. In some cases, not always, over and above and beyond you, the experiment, right? Because you're taking all of that in with you when you do the experiment, right? And so that's when, when Husserl was like, there's this idea that consciousness is we had transcendent idealism right there's the idea that consciousness is somehow a feature of the brain or it can be discovered by science Mm -hmm. but in reality the whole thing is being processed through consciousness in the first place (laughs) so in reality he said to do a more true science you have to do phenomenology you have to suspend your normal beliefs even scientific ones and see how consciousness actually manifests itself yeah. Right. And so you get something that's more starting to walk down the path of what we see in things like transcendental meditation and things like that. Right. Yes. For a very different purpose. So as you know, um, I'm with you on the topic of consciousness for sure. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. Consciousness can't be reduced to physical properties where physical properties are understood by the properties described mm-hmm. and postulated by science. Yeah. I totally agree with that. I'm not a physicalist. Mm-hmm. Um, so putting I think we're in agreement on the topic of consciousness there mm-hmm. for sure. So putting the topic of consciousness aside, I think I can take on board most of what you just said about science, its epistemic limitations, yeah. and still agree that, you know, right, science doesn't lead to true objectivity. It really just leads to inner subjectivity, and people who are doing science fail to recognize that. Totally agree. But I can still maintain that science is better at achieving this inner subjective mindset than these spiritual practices it's still a better epistemic tool to use right so i can concede everything that you just said and still say look science is limited in a way that people don't recognize but Mm -hmm. it's still a better epistemic tool than these spiritual practices that doesn't lend any more credence to the idea that these spiritual practices can accurately track reality and do so just as well as science yeah the question is better at what see this is what we're getting to things like purpose intention right that are underlying the discussion that we have to talk about instead of just saying 
science is better at this or that. Mm-hmm. Better at what? Now we're talking about what you value, what you hope to see in society, what you want it, what people should experience, right? And we're already in a realm that's not that's philosophical, right? Um, and so that's why I'm saying better at what? I think I mean I think science has its place. But we have to be very careful about, and I think it is better it's, at some things than others. Yeah. But that's why we have to be clear about better at what. I, well, I think I have an answer. It's better at tracking reality. It's better mm-hmm. at approximating this view from nowhere, right? Yes, we can never truly occupy the view from nowhere, but it's better at approximate, approximating that view because it's more systematic. You know, we're actually, you know, you have to go through this rigorous process of falsification, mm-hmm. and you record the observed effects of something that you from your own point of view Mm -hmm. experience in a more rigorous and scrupulous way than you do if you're just having these profound zen psychedelic experiences so i would say that what is it better at it's better at tracking reality because it's a more scrupulous process of trying to bring our own isolated experiences uh, Mm -hmm. together to the to try to approximate this view from nowhere yeah I hear what you're saying. I think it's better at that for some things, but I would say two things. One, I think you're underestimating the level of rigor. And this is what, what Paula Ganellan's arguing, right? Mm-hmm. That these um, communities and cultures and religions had, mm-hmm. right? They had stuff that had been going on for thousands of years. So people saying, yeah, it goes like this, this thing happens and this thing happens. No, that's not supposed to happen. That's an issue, right? Mm-hmm. To create a set of, of, to create a set of, of consensus, right? And science itself also has the weight of tradition, right? This is, what, um, this is the second part, right? Yep. What Thomas Kuhn talks about um, and other people who are critical is that it's not like, it's not just pure consensus, right? There's all these things like politics, ethics, norms all overlay into scientific research and how it gets published or not, right? So, for example, this idea of what, there's this outside influence of publish or perish, Right, that's causing a lot of false studies to be published, yeah. right? Because people are trying to make their career, or what Thomas Kuhn says. Sometimes people, once you made your career based on a claim, and you built your career over the course of a couple of decades, you're not gonna. If some new information comes in, people aren't often gonna be like, "Yeah, I'm wrong," right? Because then you lose your, you know, what I'm saying, you lose mm-hmm. the esteem, you lose the grants, you lose all kinds of stuff. And so he says that there's an actually. Even within science, there can be structures and mechanisms that make it so that people are more likely to hold on to certain kinds of dogmas, right? Even this whole thing about the fact that the fact that even though these conscious experiences have been explored for so long, the idea that just now people are starting to take them more seriously already shows that there's no empirical fact of why you wouldn't, but there are other kinds of philosophical and cultural assumptions that influence how they approach those, right? That other people who were who valued these practices were barbaric or less advanced or developed or anything like that. But there's nothing scientific about that, right? Um, and so, like, there's a book I have that you might want to read called The Dream Seekers that's about, like, I didn't know that the Lakota had a very diverse, like, when someone had, a, a, like, a vision, like, the whole community would talk about it, they would debate about it, different, re, different communities or people within the, the clans or groups would disagree about what it meant and... That per- oftentimes that person was allowed to decide what they were going to do with their visionary experience and how it was going to impact their life. There was a whole interpretive community. Um, and so I think that, and that existed in lots of different religions. I feel like a lot of times when people are 
looking at religion, they're often looking specifically at um, the pressures religions have faced under modern um, adv- advancements, like things like colonialism, massive war, and also specifically looking at uh, Europe's heritage and how it manifested Christianity once Christianity entered into and became part of the Roman Empire, right? Mm-hmm. Then it becomes this thing. But there's a lot of religious, that's what I'm saying, there's a lot of, there's a, just like with anything, there's different models of how you do religious tradition, right? Like, for example, like I said, for the golden age of Islam, they weren't, they didn't, I, they didn't separate religious experiences or religious knowledge from, some did, right? There were some, some um, Muslim scientists and philosophers who straight up atheists, right? Um, but there are many who are not. Um, and they advanced their science a lot for that time period, right? Um, they were the most advanced developed of that time. Then that baton got handed off to Europe, right? But in Europe, there's been this struggle between reason and, and, uh, and not even just reason, but science and religion that's been very bitter and very serious with a lot of pain and suffering and things like that. But that doesn't characterize how religion has existed all over the world. Um, there's been some that have been equally acrimonious and some that have been pretty nicely blended together, like places like India or other places where there it really wasn't until recently as much of even a divide between like philosophy and science mm-hmm. and spiritual attainment, right? Yeah. Um, and, but I do think religions, but I do think that a lot of religions have reached certain kinds of limitations, right? In terms of how certain concepts or ideas about God are taken to be dogmatically true and unquestionable. And right. I think that it is a problem. Because I do think that the images and, and doctrines we've received are appropriate for the time period where they were there. But as our understanding of the world grows scientifically as well as philosophically, mm-hmm. um, those things should be changing too. Because they were changing before, right? The way Christians believed in 1500 was not the way they believed at the time of Jesus. <laughs> For Change, better, for better, for worse. Changing to the point where all the supernatural beliefs are just completely gone. But then, um, is it even religion anymore? Like, how how far would you want them to change? Well, think about it. Buddhism. So you take a religion like like Buddhism. It's possible for it might be possible for it to function well without those beliefs. Um, I can't say in advance because I'm not a practitioner. I don't practice deeply those. The, the transcendental meditation, all that kind of stuff. I'm going on um, a two-week meditation retreat at the end of May. That's awesome. Yeah, it's gonna be like my first like long retreat. So yeah, and as you, as be you, fun. yeah, but I do I do understand the cons. I do understand the experience of silence, the deep kind of silence, the deep levels of awareness and things like that. And I understand how in Buddhism, some of these questions are distractions from actually just having the awareness yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. That sometimes telling someone this is true or this is even saying this is false actually blocks them from even having an awakening at all yeah um because you're because the concept that you enter into their mind now can can become a new puzzle they have to negotiate based on who they are circling back for a sec to the point you made about how scientists are often disposed not to change their beliefs i definitely feel you on that and that's so true in philosophy too yeah philosophy as well it's astounding just how unwilling people are to follow the plot wherever the plot leads Mm -hmm. and change their beliefs accordingly right like philosophers supposedly 
idealize reason and yeah. they follow wherever the argument goes yeah. but few philosophers ever change their deeply held beliefs it's just yeah. kind of like a battle of intuitions in a way a lot of times yeah and you, and you change a personal a little bit maybe yeah. some people a lot of times grad students are the ones who get indoctrinated mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, and i mean in, in, inducted probably was better than indoctrinated because uh, i don't mean it as a negative thing into various schools of thought right? yeah um, but yeah, it's these these things are just and so to to off this is part of the myth or the falsehood to offload something that's a human problem onto religion. You see, it's then it's a it's a it's just a kind of a a, a cipher. It's like a that you can project upon, right? That there are religions, are religious people, religious worldviews that are very open to change. Um, that's why some of the people who are one religion before different religions now, um, but. I've been reading, um, just on this point, I've been reading this social psychologist named Jonathan Haidt. He's a professor at NYU. Yeah, and I've just become more convinced of this, his basic thesis in this book that I'm reading is that reasoning is very much a post hoc process. Intuitions come first and reasons come second. So we'll do things based upon our intuitions and then we'll reason to justify those intuitions. So we're very good intuitive lawyers you know like we just our intuitions come first our reasoning comes second yeah, most people is, don't realize that i mean height is just he's just he's just he's just hume right this is what humans are arguing right, right. that reason is, yeah yeah is uh um he cites hume in his book I think. yeah he's he's very influenced i mean his his research is very influenced by his worldview is very influenced by hume um because there's lots of ways that you can you can interpret that I think it's so true. If, again, if you just like look at academia and you yeah. just observe people, but this, is, but this is the power. But this is the power to circle back to these religious experiences yeah. that they can change these intuitions. Can they though? I mean, sometimes, not always. But that's what we start. I only said that because that's what we started our conversation. Yeah, no, no. I, yeah, I, I don't want to leave that. I still want to relate back to that. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, I brought that up because you know I agree. That's another knock against science. We're talking about the epistemic limitations of science. And another is that, well, if this is science is so objective, why are so many scientists have the same view throughout their lives, right? Yeah, it's just, um, it's, just it's just, it's a human method and institution like a lot of others, right? Yeah, I, guess, just, I think that goes back to the point, though, that, yes, yeah, science can achieve complete objectivity. Like you said, we're all running, consciousness always comes first. Consciousness yeah. is completely primary because any experience, as you note, any experiments that we run are going to be filtered through our own consciousness. Exactly. Right? It's mm -hmm. that like that. That is always first. So for me, I'm like when it comes to philosophy of mind, I'm very much a consciousness first person as opposed to a science first person. Yeah. And for, when you're studying consciousness, I yeah. think that's the that's I the think, way to go. Yeah, I think so too. Um, so I completely understand and sympathize with the idea. And that, I want to say one thing: a lot of these things we call religion, like. For example, yoga traditions, it's just science. If you but taken, but someone who takes consciousness first mm -hmm. and builds a whole system of developing and expanding the mind of consciousness, all that kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. It's not that different. It's just that in in modern Western science, matter supposedly comes first, and so the method and the principles are directed a different way. But we call one religion, we call the other science. Right. But if I would say consciousness comes first when you're studying consciousness, but that doesn't mean that you should just completely disregard science. No, like your not. philosophical theory has to respect whatever the current scientific consensus is, I would say. 
Yeah, it has to, it has to respect it. It, it should have, respect it. It yeah. doesn't have to agree to it. Yes. Um, it can, because that's where, because this is where you, when you, when other domains have their validity. Yeah. They have the ability, like just, I just, there's an article I just have up where basically there's, there, these, there's this whole culture that the um, First Nations folks in like Alaska and Washington had about whaling. Mm-hmm. Where they started a story about this guy who was like, he had a, a vision where he was in a whale's body and a, a baby whale. And the baby whale told him certain things or he experienced certain things in the whale's perspective. And then he went to the community and like, this in the 70s, changed the rules, right, about mm-hmm. whaling. And they had this whole idea about whales that like they communicate with whales, that certain things, whales like certain smells, don't like certain smells. And that... Um, that, that there's a way of that certain whales will offer themselves up if there's a, a certain kind of ritual things or images are presented to them and things like that. And they're finding out that a lot of that stuff is true, right? That they didn't, yeah. be, they didn't believe whales had culture. Turns out they do, right? They didn't think that whales could, in humans could communicate in a lot in complex ways because they didn't yeah. think whales could, but they could, right? Um, and they did, for example, they didn't think whales could smell. So right. many native people were saying, no, if you put this burning wood near the water, it'll drive them away or whatever. They were like, this is some crazy superstitious stuff. Mm-hmm. Turns out whales can smell, right? If it's in the water and stuff. So the question becomes, well, seems like what they were doing was science, uh, but it just had other kinds of uh, things like rituals or, 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 um, trances or visions or dreams that they had that they also included into the interpretive because they also for most people things have to work can't not work right mm-hmm. so um they just and this is what polygon allen's adding she's a scientist claim that they're that they're being objective or they're more empirical that's what he's they're more empirical but in reality they're just they just say certain things don't have a bearing on reality without much real fault philosophical justification right they say you know, dreams, there's no kind of dream that can have serious insight into reality. Or this is about the time she's talking, right? Now, science has changed a lot more since like the 60s, right? But there's no kind of dream that can have impact. There's no kind of trance. Alternate states don't reveal anything meaningful about reality. All, there's all these assumptions that lots of other cultures didn't, don't, didn't have. And now we're learning that they were getting some stuff right, right? Um, so it's not yeah. like... Um, and in some cases, Western science is behind in other areas because of those very, those very blockages, right? Some of these new possibilities for new meaning to come through or to connect to a being perhaps that, that science says we can't connect to, right? Um, perhaps there are ways to deepen your relationship with a whale, right? Just how we build relationships with dogs, right? Perhaps certain states or experiences allow you to better connect to a whale at it. and a certain person has that experience and they get an insight and they bring it back to the community and say we should interact with the whales this way and it works mm-hmm. right but they've but a lot of scientists have excluded without really um a real rigorous philosophical um justification yeah but yet they're if she's saying but yet they're the ones who are the most empirical and it's, I think it's, it's also worth noting that there are different philosophical views about what science is doing. Yes. There's instrumentalism, which says that 
science doesn't necessarily track reality or tell us that reality is just this physical thing composed of can be measured yeah tracks what can be measured so it's very useful as an instrument to help us build things and stuff but it doesn't necessarily tell us anything about the true metaphysical nature of reality the idea that science informs us that reality is nothing more than atoms in the void yeah that's just not true an instrumentalist will say it's just a good instrument it's just a good tool and i have to say i'm definitely inclined to go that way with instrumentalism like just as i'm just as i'm very hesitant about drawing metaphysical conclusions based upon psychedelic states i'm also very hesitant to draw metaphysical conclusions based upon what science is doing and that's if it's a general vein then that's actually just um uh, 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 and I don't mean it's in a negative way. It's a, it's a particularly, uh, it's a more cautious conservative stance. Yeah. Which is not bad. Like for me, I'm I'm similar in, in um for these spiritual practices, right? I'm like you notice I'm not like tradition's terrible, it's bad. Or, <laughs> I'm actually more conservative and cautious about these things. Um, and so and I think that that's a good attitude, right? I think that that's the that's closer to the ideal, right? Um. And some of the reason why scientists feel, have felt so uh, emboldened to make large metaphysical claims was because of how disrespected and disdained the peoples who, who, centered these more, who centered these more religious or charismatic or charming or not charming, I mean shamanic or trance consciousness explorations. Mm-hmm. If you devalue them so badly that you can say that they're in the past or primitive well, then the doors open for you to make all kinds of metaphysical stuff because all of theirs are automatically gone because they're primitive. Right? Yeah. But that's not a scientific, you know, that, that's not a real, if you, that's not a real, that's not like a, in terms of the ideal of science, it's not a scientific claim, right? To yeah. guide these people. You already have to come up with a philosophical notion of what is primitive and what is modern. And then you apply that, to, then you use science as the instrument to say who is it and who's not. And this relates to a point that you make in your paper. I forget, there's someone who's a, a part of a Native American culture or something like that, I forget. Mm-hmm. And um, he likes some of this Western traditions, but the Western colonizer is coming over and saying that we have the white man's burden to completely eradicate your yes. culture. And yes. you have to get rid of all aspects of your culture. Yes. So he's confronted with this dilemma. Either he kind of just dissolves into this white European culture, yes. or he will just get dealt with. Yeah. And they're just telling him that, look, everything about your culture is bad because you guys are, you know, they pretty much just view this Native American society as human beings still in a state of nature. Exactly. And clearly our society is better because look at all the progress that we have made with yeah. science. Look yeah. at all the cool things we have. Exactly. Right? And so this so, is what all of your culture must be trash. Whatever it is, it's not working. Yeah, and a lot of yeah, like that's their lot, that's their mindset. A lot of a lot of people who embrace scientism, not necessarily science, but scientism, equate things like progress with with control of reality, uh, and production of objects. Right? Can we make a better of this? Right. Right. But if you but if you're philosophical, you can see that there are a lot of ways that you can measure human development or progress that don't fit that line. Like there are people who, like I said, we, there are problems we have now that other communities solved because they were interested in solving those problems, whereas we weren't. We wanted steam engines, we wanted factories and things like that, right? 
but for example in certain African communities uh, among others but I'm just focusing on African mm-hmm. it's considered a failure of your society to have homeless people that means right. you, yeah some of the other communities could, it, it, not now but back then that other communities or enemies would, have, could, would ridicule you like those people have homeless people and we view it as a necessary consequence of capitalism yeah <laughs> they would be like that's what you would mock like those people like that would feel, people feel pressure because people would mock you they'd be like those people they have homeless people yeah. They can't even take care of their own community members. Right. Like, they're whatever. So if you have that kind of moral sense, there yeah. might be certain kinds of development or progress that either A, might not happen. I mean, development or progress, in quotes, technological advances that either A, might not happen or B, might happen much slower mm-hmm. because you feel a sanction to not allow yourself to slide into home, allow homelessness. Mm-hmm. Whereas... Um, other countries, have, cultures have had this too, but I'm focused on the like things like like England or something like that, right? There it starts to get immense homelessness. United States, immense amount of homelessness. I was just and, in Los Angeles recently. Yeah, that's, that's where they all, that's, that's where they all, that's where a lot of them travel because it's warmer and, and nicer, um, and uh, especially in the winter, mm-hmm. and um, and and also because a lot of the um, some of the psychiatric hospitals they were overburdened in the 80s and so reagan just kind of was just like if they're not a threat just let them go <laughs> so they just let them out yeah um so um so you you have some things that other cultures would say how uncivilized that mm-hmm. you have all these homeless people like that's barbaric that you let people live without shelter i mean without any means of food or protection that are your citizens you say you're in charge or that you would let them that's that's barbaric mm-hmm. right so um and this is among a lot of other things right but yeah so you get into this question of that's what i'm saying it's not really a it's a philosophical uh a cultural norm that says that's determining what's modern and what's primitive or what's advanced or what's not right and this is one of the problems you have with pinker's book right <laughs> yeah yeah, and I, I watched I watched that um, that that video you sent me, and I was just like, we don't need to get fall down the rabbit hole all the way okay. on that, but yeah, I, I didn't really want to. Yeah, because I was just like, <laughs> but it was relevant to what you were just saying. So. Yeah, because he's like, what, like the things he says, like you can tell he's not a philosopher. Well, for any listeners, let me just set it up. So I recently, during spring break, I went to LA with a friend, and I went to an event with the neuroscientist and philosopher Sam Harris. And he was interviewing as a part of this new book club, Steven Pinker, who is a psychologist at Harvard, who recently just came out with a book called Enlightenment Now. Enlightenment, not like Buddhist nirvana enlightenment, but the enlightenment ideals, like the scientific enlightenment. And I got a lot of value out of it. Um, I mean, the whole experience to LA was awesome. But... Anyways, I saw the post that you had on Facebook and you objected against Pinker's book. I still haven't gotten all the way through Pinker's book. I'm like 100 pages in. But I know I was interested because we always have good talks. I was interested in talking with you about it. And um, you just have a lot of objections to his book. And it relates to some of the stuff you were just saying. Maybe you could just say, again, I don't want to fall down the rabbit hole in this. No, we won't. You could say just a couple of reasons. Yeah, just like, for example, like when the way he, like... I just watched that. So, for example, he has an anti-intellectualism. Like, when he said, he talks about philosopher, existential, all these people. He yeah. calls it the chatter class, which means talking incessantly about trivial matters. 
So that's an anti-intellectualism. How can you be, you know what I'm saying? How can you be, there's a, there's a, there's a way it's being co-opted, right? Mm-hmm. There's supposed to be a spirit of inquiry that he's defending. Yeah. And he takes the anti-intellectual stand. And then everyone laughs. I'm like, what? What is going on? <laughs> like, I thought you guys care about this kind of, this this unfettered pursuit of inquiry. I don't remember that moment specifically. Because I, I was looking for it. A lot of the people, you're in, you're in the, 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 you know, the, the moment of all the energy and the laugh, you know. Yeah. And, but there is this emphasis on like that science gets the world right and everything else is kind of secondary or whatever, which is if right. we've talked about. Just, which is why it relates to everything we Yeah, which we've talked about is like all the stuff that's being excluded, all these other notions that are included into our methods of science or schooling or whatever, science can't necessarily access those just from its method, right? Um, but for him to say, just he just says these quiet quips that that's an actually an anti-intellectualism. Um, the things he, and then one last thing then we'll move on but mm-hmm. like when he talks about reason he doesn't have a clear definition of reason like he says if you try to fight against reason you can't because you use it to convince people how to do things we use it every day yeah I remember that point yeah so yeah, yeah you said that you can't <laughs> and then uh, but then he says that certain things are like if we use it every day right then he says that certain things are like not reasonable <laughs> or certain whole domains of activity are not reasonable or thing I'm like so the basic idea is like assume that I'm a person who just doesn't believe in reason and I'm in order to defend that position I'm going to have to present you with yeah, some reasons and the question is who to say why I don't yeah, believe in reason the question is who doesn't actually who doesn't believe in reason that's a strong <laughs> you know and he even says like people use it every day mm-hmm. for everything so what he's saying is and actually Habermas the philosopher he actually argues that communicative reason that the reason that we use to convince and come to consensus mm. is actually more foundational and more important than scientific reason. Scientific reason depends on communicative reason that we use every day to create consensus and idea. And that that's the thing that we need to like institutionalize and support and protect and stuff like that to protect the gains of the enlightenment. That's a whole nother thing. Yeah. But, um, but I'm just like, this guy is not, and a lot of people watching him are not, you know, philosophers. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's a certain kind of intellectual scientism that I'm just like, and then also like he's always like I feel like he's always like one step behind other people. Like when he did the Better Angels of Our Nature, he's yep. like, why is everyone so upset? Why is everyone like this and that? Like everything's getting better, guys. Like relax. Now so he's his like, basic thesis in that book being that look, everyone's nihilistic these days. Are the Armageddon's right on the horizon? But if you actually look at you know, you can measure well-being in a lot of different ways. But if you look at all the different ways that you can measure well-being, well-being yeah. has increased yeah. throughout the world, by and large, not just in the yeah. West, but even in the poorest countries since the scientific enlightenment. So he's not saying that this is an ine- inevitable force of good that's just kind of the universe is guided yeah, by yeah, or anything yeah. like that. He's just saying that, look, by embracing these ideals, it's led to all of these increases. And perhaps we ought not to be as nihilistic about our current predicament in this day and age yeah. as a lot of people are. Yeah, then he then he realized he needs to write a whole book defending these things because right, they right. are <laughs> under attack. There is a crisis, right? I think Donald Trump woke up a lot of people. Oh, yeah. also, That's what motivated him to write the book. He realized that, and this is what people are saying, like, like Stephen, no, there is a crisis that we have to address. It's not going to just, there is a, and even he in the space, he's like, we could regress. And that's why he wrote the book. Yeah, he, he recognized he, that there was a crisis. Yeah, and he's even he even said that. I'm like, I'm just like, why? That see, what I'm saying, I'm like, why even write that other book? Like, you're obviously not even connected into reality, right? He's like, he seems like he's always like one step behind, like, 
He just like people who actually are like thinking seriously about politics and philosophy and religion and stuff like that. I mean, I think he's I think he's in debates with certain like Western conservatives where he's like you know trouncing them. But when I think about the the attitude he has about certain things, I'm like, people have been talking about this for like a, you're like a hundred years late, man. Like Husserl, 1920. All these people are saying we need to start doing these things to reimagine the society so that we can better defend it or protect it or whatever. People have been talking about it for so long, and he doesn't engage in any of these people. He just says intellectuals or the chatter class. I'm like, okay, who? Are you mm-hmm. deba- are you debating Habermas? Are you debating Husserl? Are you debating Sartre? Are you debating you know, mm-hmm. who are you debating? Yeah. Um, and he doesn't present himself in that way. He just kind of, he relies on these kinds of stereotypical notions or a sense of maybe superiority and perhaps inferiority in some ways and plays upon that, that he can just use this kind of thing like intellectuals and then people know what he's talking about. But anyway. This might be a good time to briefly take our detour else. into politics. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no. Because all this, to me, all this is interrelated. Yeah, it is. So, yeah. you, I mean, you brought up Trump. We could have a whole... Dis- that's a whole other podcast <laughs> about Trump. Uh, Trump but I'm, yeah. I'm sure we'll probably mostly agree on that. But, um, per, you know, partly in response to Trump, there's been the formation on the left of what some people have called the regressive left. So this mm-hmm. is really the political convo I want to have with you, this, this concept of the regressive left. Because, you know, we've had some... Since I've known you, we've had some really pretty good political conversations, I think. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. yeah. And as you know, I consider myself a liberal, mm-hmm. right? But it seems to me that the left is abandoning a lot of these liberal principles. It's almost like I said earlier when we were talking before the podcast, it's almost like the far left have, has become so left that now it shares many different features of people on the right. It's like become, it's gone full circle. Mm-hmm. And what I have in mind in particular is the, what does it mean to be a liberal? What it means to be a liberal is to defend liberal principles, right? Freedom of speech, equality, all these basic principles that we all agree on. And it seems like, it seems to me that people on the left, this regressive left phenomenon, it's this phenomenon of people becoming so tolerant that now they're tolerant of intolerance almost. Um, And, you know, like you have the social justice warriors, for instance, Mm -hmm. Um, they claim to be fighting against hate speech and standing up to people that mm-hmm. are oppressed. But it seems to me that paradoxically, they're the ones that are promulgating hate speech. They're the ones that are shutting down free speech, mm-hmm. right? By, by uh, objecting against someone like Ben Shapiro mm-hmm. speaking at Berkeley, right? Yeah. So it seems to me, you know, they'll come out with whistles and stuff. One question we could ask is, I don't know how widespread this phenomenon is, this regressive left phenomenon yeah i think there's some disagreement on that oh yeah yeah, it might just be some people think that it's just kind of no this is just these are just a few isolated incidents like what happened at berkeley what happened Mm -hmm. with brett weinstein at evergreen i don't know if you're familiar with that but some people think that it's just like a few isolated incidents Mm -hmm. other people think that no this is actually kind of like a wave that's sweeping the adolescents in our country yeah but it just seems to me, yeah, like I said, that's, that's people a, becoming tolerant of intolerance. And we yeah. could have a whole conversation about Islam and Islamophobia and yeah. ISIS, the social justice warriors. And I do want to uh, put into play this concept of the safe space, Ooh. which is the concept we talked about in one of our previous discussions. Yeah. So the concept of a safe space is seen by some people 
as a concept that is employed to inhibit free speech. And it's a, it's a part of this regressive left phenomenon. And sh- mm-hmm. just to shut down, it functions just to shut down opposing political viewpoints. Mm-hmm. And it's just a space in which anything that's not perfectly politically correct mm-hmm. is automatically denounced as hate speech, right? Mm-hmm. You're a Nazi. So some people view the concept of a safe space in that light. So perhaps you could just respond to that. Tell me why I'm mistaken. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, or just you, give your overall view about what a safe yeah, space you, is and this regressive left phenomenon. Yeah, you've laid out a lot. Yeah. Um, I know, sorry. And, and, no, it's good. Part, part of the problem we're facing now is that instead of thinking, people are memeing. Yeah. People say regressive left because it rhymes with progressive. Mm-hmm. But what are, the question is, what is it regressing to? Are they really trying to, based on their policies they advance, right? Are they actually trying to bring us to something that we were doing 100 years ago or 200 years ago or 50 years ago? No. So the question is, what are they regressing towards, right? Well, that might just be a matter of semantics. They're not regressing towards what life used to be like, but it's more an abandonment. They're abandoning liberal principles than regressing towards something. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. You see, there's already problems in thinking that that idea that they're, that they're regressing implies that that there's this real fear that we're we're going to slide away from these liberal principles when it's been an ongoing fight to just make some of them actually apply. <laughs> uh, some of these same people that are kind of regressive left, their grandparents were like, hell no, you ain't getting these principles. Their parents were like, no, no, like, I'm voting for drug war. Like, you know, like, so like, I don't get where this this fear comes from because they're in a direct lineage of people who have been if you def- if you want to if you define if you believe that liberalism like Spinker is a march towards progress of expansion of human rights, right. these people's families have been the main blockage point from that, right? Um, and and they want to label that these other people are regressive. Um, so in terms of in terms of um, safe spaces, um, so I have to I have to say, we'll, put, we'll put it this way. So a lot of these people, let's say they like to hang out at a, at a bar that they don't like safe spaces. They have a bar or a restaurant. Do you want, would you want what you call it, social justice warriors to be in those bars all the time? Or those spaces that you like to go to just talk and vent? Do you want, the, the, do you want these, like a collection of five social justice warriors sitting there at all times saying, oh, excuse me, you said this wrong. Oh, Telling excuse me, about me that's, my white privilege. Yeah. <laughs> You don't I want mean, that. Yeah, no. Right? And so these people are are projecting because they don't see the humanity of these people that for a lot of these people they want what safe space is not is 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 not trying to turn the public into a, a safe space, right? In the public these debates are about how the public should be, right? They're saying, "Oh, you shouldn't use this word, you shouldn't use that word or whatever, whatever." But safe spaces are places where people want a space where they can be live live in a world where they're where they're affirmed, and where they don't have to worry about someone saying, "Well, actually, you're wrong about that," or "Actually, this and this and that." Don't say that. Like, you're being this and that. You're regressive. You're this and that. You know, mm-hmm. they want to live in a space. They want to be able to have a space where they can be that way, um, and for a lot of a lot of. Uh, like I remember, like this one lady, like so we're, she 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 works in Latin American studies at UConn or whatever, mm-hmm. and none of the people, the Latin American people there, like her. But she works in Latin American studies. She's a white lady, 
and she works there and she just says all kinds of insensitive things like really yeah like we were sitting there and she was just like we were walking by and she turned to me and two other people and she's like watch out guys because this one woman was doing a, a, a reuniting Mexican women that were um, across the border with their families who had to leave for certain reasons or got kicked out. She was having like a reunite because that's her dissertation's on. Okay. It's like organization of women who have been working to try to influence laws or policies to make it so they can come back to their families. And she organized this big reunion with them. It took years to get yeah. all the applications and everything together. And so all these Mexican people in America or maybe some other people from Mexico are walking by Liddy turns to us and she's like, watch out, we're, we're a caravan of Mexicans. And she's a white lady and we're just like, why would you say that? <laughs> like, watch out for what, right? Yeah. Like all, And so like, if you're Mexican, why would you want to have her around you? You right. know? Yeah. Like, why wouldn't, aren't she's you? She's doing her dissertation in Latin America. Yeah. And this, this lady, this lady, this lady is, she's a professor in Latin America. The other one is Ruby. She was doing the organization. Okay. She, she organized this. The lady just works there. She didn't get tenure or anything like that. She works in Latin American studies. She's a, she's a, uh, I think she's a professor. She's a professor. So like, I could see how you would not want, you won't want to have a space where she's not there. You know, where you don't have to negotiate with that. You don't have to deal with that. You don't have to, you know, just like, just like you want, just like some of these, a lot of these, mostly, um, some women, but mostly a lot of white men, they don't want to be in a space where they feel where like, there's going to be like, they're going to be criticized and, and mocked or, or ridiculed or, or things like that, right? Um, and so for, for a, lot of, a lot of people of color or queer folks or poor folks, a lot of, according to what they want, when they go into these spaces like universities or businesses, or none yeah. of that exists, right? Because those, those, the norms of that place have been set by the white people who live there and oftentimes people of a certain class that is so there's certain things that are easy that to, that certain conversation we have like yeah that doesn't make any sense or you shouldn't you know like like when we were talking before about like like welfare or property all this stuff like that are just easy to talk about for between us yeah. you get certain UConn students there and they're like oh no like you know because they have a vested interest in seeing themselves in a certain kind of way and it's a whole lot of and like I said we said a lot of it has nothing to do with rationality has to do with these people's emotional attachment to their lifestyle and feeling like a good person so you're going to do all you're going to debate somebody who's not even coming from an emotion in a cycle like a rational place they're trying to justify their feelings they want to justify that their father's a great businessman or their mother is the, you know what i'm saying right it's like we we're talking about with daca like if you're one of the families affected by daca you expect them to actually like rationally debate DACA from an immigration, maybe that's a bad yeah. example, but an immigration like policy yeah, standpoint, the, like of they course work. they're going to be reasoning based upon their yeah, or that they, that they're going to want to they're going to want a space where they can grieve, mm -hmm. right? If someone loses their sister or their cousin or their grandmother, where do they go? If they're if they're a student on a campus, where do they go to say I'm sad about this? This is a terrible atrocity that I'm going to just express themselves. So right? that lady in Latin American studies, yeah. she like partly what you're saying is. She is kind of like these institutions in general. Exactly. And a lot of, and a lot exactly. of this stuff is subconscious, right? Like the people yeah. who are running these institutions, they don't realize that yeah, she's negative trying, stereotypes and stuff are yeah, built she, into speech. Yeah, she was trying to, I think she was trying to connect. And they were telling her, she does this all this kind of stuff often and stuff. And, and she's trying to connect. But there needs to be a space where you don't have to do that performance. Like yeah. a lot of... A lot of um, 
I think now the the irony is that now that conservatives are feeling that they're being pushed out, they are be they at at with this, the midterms coming. No, no, I'm talking about in society. A lot of people feel like, oh, I'm being oh, oppressed. Just in general, yeah, yeah. I can't say my opinion or whatever. Right. Gotcha. It's ironic that they turn this vitriol into saying there shouldn't be any safe spaces at all. Yeah. Because they look as if these people are creating a safe space for themselves. But this question is more about the public rather than the safe space, right? Because remember, in secularism, in liberal secularism, there's a public space and a private space. And the public space, certain norms or values or attitudes are, are governed. And those are determined by the consensus and argumentation of the people in the public space, mm-hmm. right? The private space is supposedly the consolation for all those perspectives or views that can't be in the public space for whatever reason. A lot of these conservative views were in the public space, right? Right. Now they're being pushed into the private space. But that's that's something that that's in the liberal structure, right? Yes. And so safe spaces are saying, well, aren't we, we're supposed to have a private space. Everywhere is public in this particular instance. We need to carve out a private space for us against this public. And a lot of people who are conservatives who are critiquing the idea of safe space, what they're really critiquing is them being pushed out of the public. But that's not because the public is turning into a safe space. That's because the people who the people who are who arbitrate the public have changed their norms and values about what they want and what they don't want, right? Uh, but that's a different debate than having a safe space or not, right? So, yeah, I mean, that... Because a lot of conservatives seem like they want a safe space. <laughs> that notion of the spa- safe space, the concept of a safe space that... God, that dog. That concept of oh, a safe space that you just... Yeah, that you just outlined. Um, that's completely justifiable to me, right? There's this yeah. kind of implicit racism and discrimination built into our institutions. So, as you say, people from minorities who are becoming a part of these institutions, the institutions just are that Latin American studies lady that you're just talking about and you know like you said just how i wouldn't want to have the social justice warriors in my ear when i'm at the bar that that's their reality right in these institutions it's always that it's always that you can't like you can't say like right you know you can't just openly say yeah puerto rico should be an independent country Mm -hmm. and america sucks Right, you can't, you can't just go on a where well, a lot of Puerto Ricans feel that way or disagree or whatever. But yeah, you can't just sit out in the public space and just say that because the tension gets to rise and you feel. And if you're and if you're a young person, young people are sensitive. I think it's I think it's one of the biggest um, um, problems of of the conservative movement is that it's encur- it's trying to encourage so many young people to be insensitive when they're in, when they're insensitive. Yeah. So instead, you get these really weird ex- like trolling or 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 like or like outbursts because people are so emotional about it but they're not even supposed but they're supposed to be mocking sensitivity yep you know but But they're the ones being sensitive yeah yeah but young people by nature i'm are sensitive because sensitivity is like we say it's openness Mm -hmm. right to new possibilities something new happening um the, the 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 our our senses haven't been in this world as long we're more sensitive to things you know um, heart, <laughs> right. heartbreak. So it makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Never but thought about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, may, it makes sense. But young people, and that's what makes us oftentimes more progressive or naturally more like to be empathic or whatever. But you see right. this really weird crusade against sensitivity, and I think that's trying. I think it's a kind of hyper masculinity. It's trying to make men and women 
Okay. Turn away from being young people and become like like miniature versions of seventy year old people. <laughs> you know, like curmudgeons. Oh, look at these people. <laughs> you know, like I feel like like that's the consciousness that's being transferred down. Is like, yeah, don't be an eighteen year old. Be like a fifty year old businessman. You know, that's how you should view the world. And they're like, yeah. So, yeah, I, I want to flag one thing you just said. So, yeah, like I said, I completely, the concept of the safe space that you outlined, completely on board with. Makes sense. I've, I'm inclined to say then that some people on the left have abused the concept of a safe space because they're using it when, again, they're at, they're protesting just merely conservative speakers, right? So I feel like maybe we just have different understandings of the concept because some people have abused it now so i have a different understanding of what it means well, because to me again it seems like sometimes the concept is used to just stifle free speech and this is another rabbit hole we could fall down the concept of free speech what if any limits there are on free speech well, here's the, well, you, i'm very much in, inclined to go the lockean route and think that free speech is one of the main master values that we should be defending but yeah ahead. i i think that so yeah, so I, I don't so to be in all honesty, I don't um, because I, I don't I, I have certain ideological differences or I'm not a super activist. I don't follow a a lot of these protest events and B I don't I surely don't follow how they're represented and interpreted right. to conservatives, mm-hmm. which is which I think are two different things. But when I um, when um, but there's there's a question of with the university because that's what because re- I think a lot of this is really we have to get into the question like what is a university and how do universities function and what universities are supposed to do mm-hmm. because a lot is there, no no one's really there feel there really aren't any really serious discussions about why is this happening in universities right why not and this is but this has always been the case right but that's why it's, it's bad that it's happening in universities because universities are supposed to be the home of a free exchange of ideas. And this is well, precisely never, stifling never, the free exchange of But they've never ideas. been they've never been the home of free of the free exchange of ideas. Like for example, um, in the seventies, right, if you were writing a book about how you were sympathetic to the Black Panthers, you were not getting tenure. And you were not getting hired. <laughs> you right. know? Yeah. Um, same like the Ku Klux Klan. Same, I mean, there's, there's always and that's what I was talking to my students. There's this false romanticization of the university as a space that's always been a free exchange of ideas, but it's not. But yeah, but they I, might I bring think, people. Again. They might bring people to speak, mm-hmm. but a lot of people were excluded or not brought into it. In fact, a lot of these places, they might bring Malcolm X to talk, but there weren't even black people. Like there were five black people even go to the school, right? Um, yeah. So like, I, I'm I'm tempted to con- concede that, right? It's never been a perfect place where a free stage of ideas can transpire but you can i can still say that well it's going in the wrong direction it's becoming less and less that to the extent that it ever was that it's moving in the wrong direction at least if you think that these phenomenon of college students shutting down conservative speakers is widespread and it's not just isolated yeah i think i don't think it's that widespread but my question is when now it's students that are activists doing it, but when has there? When was the like the golden era where different American citizens, Mexicans, Native Americans, Blacks, women, were able to have a really strong open exchange of ideas, be hypercritical, um, organize different rallies and things in these spaces? There probably never was one, but yeah. still, this isn't the way to go. Just to then you know, this is one of the problems. I partly disagree with you. I think about uh-huh. what you said about the crusade against sensitivity mm-hmm. and how it's 
the result of this kind of hyper masculinity. I think that it is this crusade against sensitivity is at least partially justified because a lot of young people are just unwilling to listen to reason and anything that they think is an attack on their identity mm -hmm. or that they just intuitively disagree with or offends them or upsets them. Even if it's like, let's say it's yeah. not bigoted, right? Let's say it's just like a sound argument from a different political perspective, mm -hmm. okay? They still take offense to it because they're too much in their feelings. So they're unwilling to follow the plot and just value reasoning. So I would be tempted to say that it's part this crusade on sensitivity is partially justified because it's functioning to make college students value reasoning less. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't think that that's necessarily true. I think it's true to a degree because I am mm -hmm. very critical of activist culture. Um, I think that there are a lot of problems with it. And it's like facilitating tribalism too, but kind of in a way, a, a little bit, but not really. Okay. Um, not, I wouldn't call it tribalism because that, that implies that tribes are always insular, but they're not. Okay. Uh, many tribes are really welcoming to strangers. Yeah. Um, um but um um with with the um with the um yeah with the, with this with this with the activist with the, my my thing with the insensitivity I'm not talking about like that there aren't any problems with people being oversensitive yeah. I think that's true but I'm saying that there's a much deeper issue where just the idea of like that was linked to safe space where the idea of wanting a safe space is like weakness as if young people don't need spaces where they can grow and develop, you know what I'm saying? Um, that's what I mean. Uh, not, not, not an idea that like sensitivity uh, itself has always has to be the, um, the, 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 there, there's no issues with it, right? In some ways, in some ways, there's lots of people, even the, the, the left is becoming more reflexive and there's debates within it. This is why I don't like this idea of yeah, making a left like we're we're having we're leftists right now having a debate about these yeah. things. So like this whole regret, it doesn't even make sense, right? It's just a projection, right? But well, well, I think I perceive you to be a little more far left than me. Yeah, so yeah, I'm trying yeah. to like meet in the middle. But I'm saying the fact that but I'm saying the fact that we're even <laughs> yes. having this debate um, already implies um, a lot more heterogeneity than these projections. Um, but it sounds but, like you but, think that me, the sensitivity is justified, right? In because some ways it is. Um, but so for so yeah, this is where we go back. Uh -huh. The university doesn't have the resources or the structural apparatus or in incentives to actually meet that ideal. That idea of, of free exchange of ideas, right? The ideal was established when they when they could the ideal has always been attached to the idea that the university can exclude those who they don't want to appear, right? By saying that they're not reasonable or that they're not, uh, uh, they haven't gone through the, the certain process, they're not ten, they're not, not faculty or they're not professors. Or, there's always been ways in which the university has said, no, you can't come here. You can't appear here. You can't exchange your ideas, right? Or maybe once, but generally we're not. But it was institutional, not students. So no one really, cons no one was concerned about it. There are plenty of universities that, during the height of the Red Scare, didn't allow communists to talk. Um, I mean, there, or, but that doesn't make what this new phenomenon right. No, no, no. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying that this is a factual, structural problem of the university. Okay. That there has to be an arbitration of who can come and who can't, right? Because you're, because this place credentializes people, 
right? So there's always a notion of who's allowed to represent intellect and ideas. And so the, what, what's actually going on is that, that the, the politics that have always been present in the university, but just were more behind the scenes, mm-hmm. have now come to the forefront because students are recognizing they have more power and that they have the right to influence the university to be what they want, right? Um, and this is not like every single university. The University of Chicago is not going this direction. It's going the opposite direction, right? Um, it just now realized it went a little too far when it tried to invite Richard Spencer. And it was like, you know, or someone suggested it and they were like, no, not that guy. But they brought like um, Banner, Bannon back when he was like, right. when he was on the rise. And they're like, well, this is a guy who's got a very influential spot in, you know, the world. Why wouldn't we want him to come talk and all that? Right. But even they've had to scale it back a little bit. The University of Chicago marks itself as like, no safe spaces, we're a free speech zone. And it's not, it's not, it's not surprising that lots of conservatives are flocking there, right? So it's not like there's no other universities that we can go to, right? So I don't, I don't think that every university has to uphold the same norms and standards. No university ever has, right? Different universities were, even when it came down to when they were used to be religious universities, right? Like, no, you're not talking about that Catholic shit here, right? You know, like, right. or none of that Lutherans and stuff. Get out, right? I mean, universities have always been about authority. And that's why it's always going to be a power struggle, right? But there was this ideal that the authority just came from the free exchange of ideas, but it didn't. Um, it came, it comes from this power. And students can, just like with faculty and stuff, can say, hey, we don't want this kind of person here, right? Because this person, you know, we pay tuition, Right. I mean, this is this is what I'm saying, that this is irony where so many people who are free market are so worried about this. This is just people who are paying. Right. And a lot of it, especially in private, like Yale and stuff that a lot of these people are paying or Yale is giving with their own money saying we don't want I don't want this person here. Right now, in terms yeah. of state universities, you might have a have a different thing. But um, but certainly a lot of these people are upset about private universities or public universities where a lot of people pay money. The parents pay. Right. Uh, or pay large sums of money. You would think that people would have. I mean, if you're offering someone, if I say, "Hey, you're gonna, you know, you, you, it's fifty thousand dollars. You need to go buy a car." You best believe you're gonna expect it to make sure it's exactly like you want it to be, right? Yeah. You're not gonna be like, "Nah, this is, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's some things are not to my liking or make me really uncomfortable in here." Like, I don't care. Right. I'm supposed to spend fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> you're gonna be like, "No, like this needs to be fixed. I don't want to be like this." So. There's this idea of like, this is weird conflation where if you adopt a kind of free market ideology, it seems like this is exactly what's supposed to be happening. That the people who have a lot of money or influence are making these spaces where they were supposed to be. And then competition between universities will then prove over time that one view is better than the other. Okay. Right. But the fact that people are afraid shows that even they know there's a lot more going on to what makes a society a healthy, harmonious place than just competition, right? Yeah. There have to be certain types of investments or sacred lines drawn, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and that some some things can't be stepped over, right? Yeah, I was, um, I'm unaware of a lot of these facts that you bring up about just the history of institutions and universities yeah. and how that's relevant to the current situation. So yeah, just, yeah. that's definitely given me a lot to think about. Yeah, just read about it. I mean, we, I mean, we have a really good education department here and i'm in a class on philosophy education so we've been reading some of this stuff and um um this i mean a lot of this some of the stuff goes all the way down to um 
grade school and high school about what can be said, what can't be said, how active you can be, how active you can't be. Well, that's perfect because that's the topic I wanted to conclude on, the topic of free speech. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and you've already, um, we've already brought it up and talked about it a bit, but just to explicitly bring it to the forefront, I mean, my basic stance on free speech is I'm very much a Lockean. I think, as I mentioned, I think it's kind of like the master value that allows us to correct our other values. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, in general, things become so normalized so quickly in society. And you need to allow free speech to transpire to figure out what ideas are bad and what ideas aren't bad. If you start shutting down free speech, then potentially bad ideas that are norms in society Mm -hmm. will just become kind of ingrained in the culture. And people will just... Unable, they'll be unable to see the other side because they're not allowed to think to think or, or talk about the other side. Yeah. So they're going to view that as just the reality, the way things are, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, when in actuality, it might be a bad idea. So but my point is, free. I, I definitely understand how allowing free speech, just un- allowing unfettered free speech mm-hmm. can lead to the dissemination of some bad ideas, mm-hmm. right? And those bad ideas are going to have consequential effects on people yeah. they're going to take the minds of young people and perhaps those young people will grow up with skewed belief systems but mm-hmm. i think that i think that utility will be maximized right if we allow some of those bad ideas to disseminate in the name of the greater good of free speech because mm-hmm. again free speech is the tool that we need to use in order to figure out which ideas are good in order to figure out which idea is the winner in this war of ideas yeah, that we're now, all engaged in here yeah now so, one of one of the issues is that the liberty of freedom of speech in itself has actually caused this rift right now, right? Um, both sides are saying the other person is against free speech. Yeah. But the fact that both people can associate and create their own bubble without any type of like institutional saying, no, that's just wrong. You can't disperse, disband, 4chan, shutting it down, you know? that yeah. th- It's actually created this polarizing condition in the first place, right? Because freedom of speech in itself, it's good, but there are other things that are underneath it. And this is where the language that what we the question we need to be, this is what I talk about Greg with about, is that it's what's really being a problem is one of respect, right? That that's what creates the bonds that provide a lot of stability in the communities when people respect each other and trust and trust each other. Mm-hmm. Those things have gone down the toilet. Freedom of speech can't bring that back, right? Um, there needs to be other. There needs to be a place where people can talk freely, but that's not freedom of speech in the terms of what you're saying of saying whatever you want in the public space. Right. right? We're talking about people need to be able to build bonds in the private space or the public space, but intimacy, right? Intimacy, trust, respect. These are the things that are broken down, and this is what people are arguing about, right? That that's disrespectful to me to use that language or call me that thing, right? So do you think there should be restrictions on free speech? Um, it's certain I mean, like, obviously, if you're going to, like, th- if you're threatening someone's yeah, life, yeah. then yes. I, I, but... think, I, think, I think when, I think that freedom of speech makes sense in a context where people trust each other and generally share a, quite a similar worldview. Think about it. The people who wrote these, these were the people who were the, we call the founding fathers, right? These are people who are from a very similar stock, culture, economic class, other things like that, right? Right. And they had a similar fear of the government eroding what they have. And so they crafted these rules. But that space that 
what that they had when they crafted those rules and that it's supposed to operate on, that worldview, hasn't transferred over, right? So freedom of speech in itself doesn't prevent this radical rupturing and splintering, splintering, right? I think we have to have some serious discussions about what institutions are actually authoritative in our culture, right? In the 50s, it was the university was much more obviously that space, right? You can't just, you know, you can't just say like whatever you want. I mean, you go ahead to 1950s or 60s, you can't, people, there was a, people had a certain respect for the news. People had a certain respect for the uh, universities, right? Yeah. And so the authority of that institution, people willingly said, yeah, you know what? We'll let our speech or let our morality be kind of framed by what the news media says. If they say the war is going good, it's going good. If the, if the, if the, if the, if the, if the scholars and stuff say the sun is so-and-so, that's what it's like, right? Right. But now you're seeing a break of trust away from that authority, and now you have people saying the world is flat, right? Um, so let's go back to this um, particular case where there's like, let's see, LGBT person, they want you to call them by a particular pronoun, yeah. and someone refuses to do it, and it's just a matter of respect, as you said. Yeah. My perspective on that particular case would be Someone the says, person shouldn't be mandated, like by law or anything like that, to call them the pronoun that they want to be called. We, because of their free speech, they they're allowed to call them whatever they want, and we can use our free speech to call that person an asshole, and they yeah. deserve to be called an asshole to call them insensitive, right? Yeah. But I don't think that this person who is an asshole who is refusing to address them, this person, well, look, whatever. I put it this way, honestly, I don't. I don't think it should be mandated. Yeah, it shouldn't I, be mandated. I don't feel in it. I don't feel, first of all, we'll, we'll talk about two things. One, I'm straight up. I don't feel that the world's a worse place because people can't just call me nigger and I'll have to spend my time telling them why they should or should not do I'm I'm a lot happier in this world. It used to be that people could say that, right? Sure. But now people can't. And, there's a, and I don't feel like the world is closer to collapse or freedom of speech has been weakened so much. Um, and I also feel that certain speeches about, but there, that's a, I mean, that's, I feel like that's relevantly disanalogous to the case that we no, were just no. talking about because there's well, such a, uh, no, I, I, that's, what, that's, that what, that's what I said two, that's what okay. I said two points. Right. So what I'm saying is that it seems like there are, well, to me, I'm saying is that there is, there's, there's, there's not an automatic fear in terms of limiting what certain words can be said, right. In these spaces. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't, as the culture evolves, certain norms and values are going to move in, right? And they're going to say, we value this more. I mean, you can't really get around that. Like, you can't... But that's where I'd precisely disagree, because I would say, no, we need to hold up free speech as the master value. Because I'm saying, I'm saying you don't necessarily have to, like, punish someone and flip out. That's something that's wrong. But if someone says, hey, call me her, and right. you say, no, him. Yeah. Like... Come on, like, why do you gotta be an infant, right? Just, just, I agree. no, I'm just saying, like, yeah. and, and then, like, you know what I'm saying? And then you say, hey, don't do that. And then you need to train people to, to not do that, right? Mm-hmm. But people, the thing is, something that should be really easy, and this is where it becomes a problem, something that become really, should be really easy, just people saying, hey, don't do that or whatever, has become weaponized on both sides, right? Yeah. Now you have people going into these spaces and saying, him and then recording the reaction it's like what you see what i'm saying this is where it's becoming a problem right yeah where where instead of it being instead of us talking about how do we show each other respect how do we connect to each other how do we build intimacy and trust the question becomes 
it becomes about should I have the right to say this or say that or but it, but it's but it's but there's a there's a lot more going on yeah right and that's where yeah. so for me if you have the trust and respect mm-hmm. like for example we have we're building we built a relationship right yeah if I say hey man don't call me this thing you're not gonna be like oh my god like you're cutting my free speech how dare you infringe upon like, my rights yeah, you're gonna be like I understand you yeah right and if you say hey man don't address me this way. Yeah. Right? I'm going to be like, okay, because I respect you, right? Yeah. And then we move on to whatever else we need to. But there's this, there's this, there's this right to disrespect that is a big part of the problem because it's, it's hard to ask people to accept being disrespected, um, especially when so this is the thing about the university, right? This is the question of why the university. A lot of these places, we take someone that's that's in the LGBTQ movement. Mm-hmm. They don't, they can't, they can't, they don't have any influence, right? Right. They can't on the street. They can't say, "Hey, call me him." People say, "Oh, look at that." You know, if it's a trans, let's say it's a trans man. So we go, "Hey, you know, woman, why are you doing this or that? You need to dress in a dress, whatever." Or they go to bars or other things. There's no impetus on right, but the university. Because the student has a particular authoritative role in the university space, yeah. that becomes one where they say, hey, you know what? I want this space to be one where I'm addressed by my pronouns and I'm called by who I am and I'm not disrespected. I would you know, I, I, yeah, I agree with everything you're saying. And I would say that the best way to go addressing that is not to limit free speech, but just to foster a culture of respect. A culture in which we can all use our power of free speech because we respect one another mm-hmm. to vehemently criticize the person who's being insensitive towards another person's identity. So, again, I think but that the solution the wouldn't be becomes, a matter of mandating the question becomes, or restricting speech. No, because in a university, eventually, because you have a bureaucratic class, yeah. eventually it's going to have to mandate into, it's going to have to turn into some type of authority because it has to be arbitrary because that's how universities work. There's a managerial class, there's a president, a vice president, there's a disciplinary committee, there's certain training, there's liability. There's all kinds of structures that are external to university. That that's what, I'm, that's what I'm saying is that I think a lot of people don't understand universities. Yeah, it goes back to the whole institution. Yeah, a lot of people don't understand universities. And so it's they're just, things are being, instead of these are, these are some unique challenges that universities face that if we maybe looked at universities differently or made them not have certain obligations or liabilities or things like whatever that the conversation might go a different way. So you but, don't think it's possible to really even think about this issue yeah. outside of the realities of universities? I think, I think, I think, I know, I think a lot of other people are doing that. Like, they see something at Berkeley, and like, it's the end of the world. They see something, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Exactly. Where the question should be, this is where, like, the ICD fellows, ICD fellows or um, this everyday democracy is really good about, there are institutions that are democracy needs that is lacking. And one of them is perhaps a, an actual space for true dialogue, right? And everyday democracy, one thing they do is to try to help communities do that. And she, and Karen Abdul, she's amazed, by the way, the people you would never expect to connect can connect the way that people can, when they're in, because even, 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 um, even a dialogue has rules, mm-hmm. right? And the people... She says you let the people set the rules themselves. Grace's maxims. Yeah. Yeah. So like, so like. Taking a pragmatic seminar right now. Yeah. So we've been talking about this. Even discuss something with someone, right? Yeah. Implicit conversational rules. Yeah. So, but a dialogue space is different than what a university space is, whereas where students live, right? It's also their home. Right. That's the thing that makes it, that's what also makes it complicated. A lot of the students where they live, 
It's where they eat. It's where they work. It's where it's their home. And so you're telling them that someone should come into their home and talk to them however they want, right? Um, without them perhaps getting upset or want to negotiate a different boundary line, right? Most people, if you go into their house and you talk about whatever, whatever, they're going to feel like uniquely justified in telling you to be quiet. Yeah, it's their home, or, or but again, out. the idea behind a university or college, even if this isn't the reality, as we discussed, yeah. is to get exposed to new ideas that may make you uncomfortable, right? Yeah. So, yes, it's their home, but the whole point is to kind of get outside your comfort zone. But a lot of these people, but remember, I, I think we talked about this before, and I talked with my students about it, there are a lot of conservative intellectuals who don't make a spectacle out of their belief. Like, I think someone like yeah. Height. Probably, I think he leans a little conservative, doesn't he? Yeah, I think yeah. Right, yeah. No one protests him, even though he nope. talks about. You see what I'm saying? But there are people who make a spectacle. There are people who are being famous. They're trying to be celebrity intellectuals, not just intellectuals, and they are a problem. Left are they or, trying left to be right. celebrity intellectuals? I mean, yes, someone yes. like Milo. Milo, definitely. Milo, Ben Shapiro. Okay, we can disagree on Ben Shapiro. I like Ben, and I think that that he's. I think he's in. Look, I disagree with a lot of what Ben says across the board, but I think he's a smart guy, and I do think I do think that he's intellectually honest. I think that Milo is just a performance artist, and he's exactly a manifestation of what you're just talking about. He's someone just seeking intellectual fame. Ben Shapiro is big enough, famous enough that he now has an image to represent in addition to his ideas. Yeah. So that's yeah, what that's why I'm critical. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. There, there are lots of other conservative scholars. Some of them, for example, that um, um, Pinker argues against or that attack his new book and whatever. We could easily invite them, right? Yeah. Um, I think Bill Lichen in our um, philosopher, I think he's Love conservative. Bill. Yeah, he's I'm planning wonderful. on doing a podcast with him. Yeah, he's wonderful, and we, I, I'm pretty sure he leans conservative, or he did. We have all kinds of discussions. I've never felt like, but he recognizes that, like, him. oh, God. certain things are wrong or whatever. Yeah, and I never felt like disrespected, you know. Yeah. Um, and certain things he'll say, he'll say, "Well, I don't know about that," you know. Mm. But I could tell that he's not. He he. I could tell that he cares about me. Yeah. Right. And is, and is invested in my success. Yeah. There are a lot of people who they just want to write to disconnect from you or treat you however they want by saying whatever they want to you in a space. But that that's the, the thing underneath that we need to talk about. Is like, that's why what is, I feel like we're losing. You know, but we, we can't just disagree with someone, but yet respect one another's humanity and just have a mutual. But that's the thing is one person is saying, <laughs> but that's the thing with one person. But if your gender and your gender struggles are a core part of who you are, right? And you know. And that you've been trauma, you've all these things, and you come to a place where you, when that pronoun, him or her, is a marker of your development and, and reference to all these things you've suffered or whatever, and you just ask, hey, you know what, we can just call me her. And the person says, no, him. Like, you see what I'm saying? Like, that is not, that is not the ideal. You see what I'm saying? There's always been this problem where the the ideal freedom of speech has allowed these other things to get in it like for example stuff like scientific racism or whatever what are like yeah look at these these black people they just came and think <laughs> like and 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 these ideas aren't even they're like old and um these 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 people are making i feel like they're like when i look at some some of the videos i've seen about ben shapiro like like shuts down this person he's just like yeah it was like it's very culty yeah, it is. This whole dark web of figures. It's with Sam Harris too. Like, yeah, it's, just, it's like 
It's like a cult following of these figures. And that's what I'm saying. This, this, that's what I'm saying for these people. Is they're no longer even themselves in this place of... Yeah, they've come to represent something that's larger than themselves. Exactly. And this is what people... And that's what I'm saying. This is what is going on when mm-hmm. people are exchanging freedom of speech. It's a, it's, a, it's a mythic, it's a conceptual discussion. No longer an actual exchange of ideas where I genuinely hear what you have to say and you genuinely hear what I have to say, right? There's a difference between... So even if Ben Shapiro started out not trying to seek fame, now he's kind of has yes. to live up to this exactly. ideal that he's built for himself. And because of that, he can't actually listen to the reasons that you're giving him exactly. that because might contradict that ideal. Exactly. Because he has to live up to that ideal. Exactly. That's he has why, to epitomize it. Exactly. And that's why, he's, that's why I'm saying he's become a, a persona, unfortunately, because he can't say, you know what? I was wrong about that. I need to revise my whole philosophy. You know, he's going to say, oh, he's either going to do some flipping thing or he's going to skirt the question or he's going to whatever. Do you think liberals are guilty of this too? Like prominent liberal, like liberals, conservatives, progressives Mm. are all guilty of this. Any prominent intellectual figures in the public space? Um, Or not any, but a good good majority, good chunk. um, Yeah, I don't really know of any. Because I feel like the for me the the like liberals like they can be wrong about stuff, but they're not as like vitriolic. They're also not saying like the sky is falling down because I can't say that black people are in, inherently less intelligent than white people. Like you know, like I don't I don't see them making those kind of arguments. Um, but someone who has a liberal I think is wrong a lot. Hillary Clinton. Um, <laughs> I'm not a Hillary fan. So yeah, no, we but, can unite. But, but she she one that goes and talks about all kind of stuff. I and, voted like, for her in the yeah, election. Yeah, yeah. No, I think, yeah, but, but she's someone, and I, yeah, and you voted for her and you disagree with her, you know what I'm saying? But she's someone who a lot of people disagree with in terms of, Such and she's a things. true, yeah, and she's a true, she's a true blue, like, political liberal, right? Yep. She's not a progressive, she's not a conservative. She's more conservative than she is progressive, but she's definitely in a liberal frame. Um, so, I, I mean, she's someone that I disagree with, and she comes to talk on campuses and stuff, and a lot of people disagree with her, but she doesn't, she doesn't. She respects people. And I feel like a lot of conservatives, they, they couch this call for respect as like insincerity and wanting to control what people can say or can do. But honestly, I think those a lot of those guys are just kind of like immature. I think they've spent too much time on the internet in an echo chamber. Like I feel like 4chan. Like 4chan is these guys' safe space. They want to live in what a... What is sp- that with 4chan? 4chan is like a website where um, there's basically... It's, it's an all anonymous Okay. And there's basically no rules on what you can say or can't say. And it's a place where like the alt-right and fascism, Nazism and stuff has grown as a cultural influence there. Um, any, everything. The only thing, I guess the only thing that you can't show there is... A child. lot of those Pepe the Frog memes. Yeah, that came from there. A lot, anything, I feel like the only, thing you can't, the only thing you can't show there is child porn. And wow. even still, people will sometimes like link to it or... They'll, they'll, Just because? Just because fuck you? Yeah. Or, or, and then you can get like your account deleted or whatever but um, and, just um, trolls trolling other trolls <laughs> yeah and that's the space they want to live in right uh, yeah. and you can and nigger faggot is really common niggers are really popular word there faggots are really popular word there and a lot of the alt-right a lot of that stuff has really built up in this 4chan space um, I will say that you know I think that but, these... wait, let me finish my point right there yeah but that's the world, and this 4chan is overwhelmingly influenced by white men, right? Mm-hmm. And some young, some, you know, some people, others, of course, the majority of young white men. That's the kind of space they want to have. 
they want to have 4chan, right? Yeah. And that's where they feel that they're comfortable and they're happy and stuff like that. And they have that space virtually. Um, but of all the, but I feel like they're, I feel like they're so critical of other people trying to create that space virtually. And also the fact that minorities who've traditionally been excluded from having physical spaces to talk about what they want to talk about, there's there's so much vitriol for all. I mean, like all yeah. these people are saying is just like, yeah, I want to have a space where I'm respected for for who I am. And people, are like, oh my God, no, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like no, like races are unequal, man. Like no, like it's like. Well, one thing I want to say is that I do think that these virtual echo chambers exist on both sides of the political spectrum. They do. And, you know, it's like we're living in two different universes now. Yeah, and, that's, where... and to me, that's why I feel like freedom of speech in itself doesn't guarantee a stable society. Because freedom, the, the fact that the government can't say, close this down, close that down, like China does. China says, no, you guys can't talk about that. No, close that website down. It's too, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, they don't, Chinese government doesn't believe in free speech, right? Um, we're allowing all these pockets of, because there's a certain level of maturity and cultivation and development and empathy that you have to be able to have to be able to handle free speech, right? And I think that, look, for me, like, for me, I'm understand that democracy is hard. It's one of the hardest, it's, it's one of the hardest forms of government to have, right? Mm-hmm. To be able to say that I, as an individual, am responsible for what my nation does, what my community does, right? That's hard. And what you said instead is that a lot of people have been encouraged to absolve themselves of responsive of that responsibility. And it's also it's also hard because tribalism is natural, right? Like that's what we, we evolved in tribes and becoming a, a democracy is largely a matter of, you know, transcending no, our other, tribal other, groups and other nations that weren't demo- democratic also had lots of good in like I think I think like certain eras in India's history, it was Lots of different religions and peoples coexisted really, and it wasn't necessarily secular; it was interfaith space, which is different than a secular space. They they did some, they had some periods where there were wonderful interfaith spaces, and some periods where it wasn't so hot like that. Um, well, I mean, just a matter of evolution, though. We did evolve in tribes, and I think a lot of evolutionary psychologists would say that a lot of these innate tribalistic impulses that we have, you know, this natural sense of affinity to people who might look like us or who are members of our in-group in some sense. Yeah. This can, this has an evolutionary story behind thing, it that we can tell. Yeah. And but the thing we can realize that these impulses, they, they may have been conducive to passing our genes down um, at some point in human history, but now they just function to facilitate divisiveness and racism. And there's something that we need to racism, get rid of. Yeah, racism isn't really even about... It's some of that, some of those instincts, but there's a lot more than that in terms of how certain, if you, those, those instincts, how in-group, out-group relationships are formed. Yeah. Because it's not based on, it's not basically based on who looks like you because, you know, even during the Roman era, they didn't care. They cared about who was Roman, right? Yeah. And the barbarians were the ones that you fought, right? Yeah. So um, I guess let me rephrase it. People who you perceive to be a member of your in-group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, and the, but the... The, but the whole process of how you come to get an in-group nowadays is so social and constructive, right? It's how you're educated. It's how you're taught. It's how what people you connect to and don't connect to, right? Because mm-hmm. to me, the biology... I remember this one guy was talking about, like, what are reasons for prejudices and stuff or things? And this one guy was like, biology. And I was like, 
he was saying that. I didn't, it was an orientation. I didn't say anything, but I was like, he's he, he was operating a very simplistic notion. Because I think I told you before, like, there are people who their 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 daughter had, gets had, gets impregnated by a black man and they disown the child. That's yeah. not biology. <laughs> that's you know what I'm saying. There's no that's and against your biological. That's disgust. That's like you you go against your biological. Both say no. I'm not talking to my grand. You know, or they marry a Muslim, or 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 they 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 um they come out as gay. And like, no, get out. Like, that's not biological. <laughs> you know, these are these are some other things layered on top. That are more important to humans than their biology in terms of what forms the end group or not, you know. Um, and that's what I'm saying is that part of the work we need to do is figure out what types of either new institutions or processes do we need to bring into being that create different dynamics of in group, right? Yeah. And I think, for example, so like everyday democracy, I've always felt like why don't we have any civic institutions? You know, we, we don't have like a civic, like every, every town should have a civic center. This, you know, this is why I talked with one guy who was a student of, of height, who was working on his work. Huh. I was like, because he was talking about some other things about how this very issue about how emotions and these things matter more than reason, right? A lot of times <coughs> with people matters more is who they're connected to, who they're, who they're accountable to, right. even more than what they think. You could, the reason is post hoc. Yeah, you could, you could, yeah you, could push, you could push all their rationality away. And if the bonds are strong enough, they'll just move into conspiracy. Right. Right. Um, and so, um, um, and so, like, for for example, why aren't there any, like, I mean, the church was one place that people came together, but now we don't, we might need something like a, a, a civic center, a place that's provided by the government or whatever. They provide money for people to build up for people to come and meet each other. Yeah. And, and talk and discourse and connect to each other and have and have certain rules or things like that, right? And it, and it, but it should come out of a, a natural dialectic, dialogical process where the people start communicating and talking. Yeah. They build a certain consensus of then you give them an institution uh, that helps them maintain that. Yeah, this like, is one thing that I've, I've thought about a lot. Um, just how as people become less and less religious and religion has less of a prominent influence on society, like you said, that used to play the role of that civic institution that was in the middle of the town where people could yeah. come together and derive meaning from each other, yeah. etc. And there might be a crisis of meaning that is partly facilitated by the world becoming more atheistic. And I've definitely, I don't know whether I believe that or not, but mm -hmm. it's certainly a thought that I've entertained. Um, yeah, yeah. That's world. a whole other rabbit hole that we could fall down. I think we should probably wrap it up. We okay. got like three hours or so. Okay. What time material. is it now? It's five. Okay, cool. Yeah, but the, yo, this has been great. There's a lot of stuff that um, you've given me food for thought. I definitely yeah. want to. I definitely want to read some of the stuff on the nature of institutions and universities because I feel like that played a central role in. Yeah, 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 yeah. I have to. I have to find some stuff on philosophy of education. And other stuff like we have a whole reading group of different things. Yeah, there's one guy Ivan Illich. He says he's against schools. Period. Really? Yeah, he thinks schools are <laughs> unnecessary formalization of learning. I keep seeing these, <laughs> I keep seeing these rabbit holes that we might fall down. Yeah.